Welcome to CCO Podcast, calling college students to serve Jesus Christ with their entire lives. Well, hey, it's good to see everybody. Since it's 2 o'clock, I'm going to go ahead and get started. Um, guys, it's a pleasure to see all of you here. Uh, there were like 20 different breakout sessions, all that had awesome topics, um, of which I was like, man, I don't even, I know I'm like leading this one, but I kind of want to go to some of the other ones because they look so amazing and relevant and practical. Um, but, but thanks for being here. We're going to dive into a topic that I believe is very um, relevant and applicable to not just you know, the college phase that you're in, but also just life in general. So I know that, uh, that those of you who are showing up, you showed up not because of who it was that was giving the talk, but rather the topic that was going to be talked about. So let me introduce myself for those of you who might not know me. My name is Austin Gentry. Uh, I serve as a young adults pastor in Houston, Texas at Second Baptist Church. You're probably like, Second Baptist Church? I know of like First Baptist or First Presbyterian. Like, why are you second? Literally because we were the Second Baptist Church in Houston. So um, very original, uh, but that's the name of our church. So I flew up here from Houston uh, yesterday. Um, I had never heard of Jubilee until last year, actually. Um, I grew up in North Carolina. I went to the University of North Carolina, and uh, we had uh, only a handful of ministries. So I, I didn't hear of CCO. Um, y'all are just now breaking into the North Carolina market. Um, so it's really cool to, to be a part of what God's doing here in the Northeast and Pittsburgh. And now I believe y'all are now extended into 19 different states, I believe. So you're growing a lot. It's really awesome to see. Um, is that right, 19? Something like that. So you're still growing. That's the most important thing. But it really is a privilege to be here with you guys. Um, I'm passionate about college students, about college life. Uh, I believe that being in college, you are in perhaps the most ripe and pivotal time in your entire life. Um, It is extremely important. Who you become in college, I believe, shapes who you are for the rest of your life. Um, Not that like it's it's a it's a you know, it happens once and then, oh, well, after college, you know, you lost out. You know, that's not true either. With God's grace, all things are possible. But in college, you're at a very malleable point in life. And so about, I worked in college ministry uh, while I was in seminary. Um, so I love college students. I published a book called 10 Things Every Christian Should Know for College. Um, just kind of breaking down the intellectual struggles, the, the, the social struggles, the temptations that you're going to find along the way. So I, I love college students, and, and being a young adults pastor, I have the college ministry kind of like uh, under my purview as well, which I love doing. I love college students. You're at an awesome time uh, of your life. Um, so I want to talk about, as you came here, identity and self-worth. Identity and self-worth. And, what, and before we dive in, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and pray and then, then kick this off uh, as we kind of dive into the text we're going to be looking at. Well, Father, uh, I thank you for this time that we have to gather um, people from all over this country uh, just for a weekend of uh, refreshment, of renewal, for revitalization, to hear from your word, to be with your people, to learn, to be equipped. Um, but ultimately, God, not, not for, for it to only end on us, but so that in us it can be moved out to those people who don't know you, people who need you, people who need truth. So God, make us more uh, fit ambassadors for your kingdom through this time. I pray you'd bless it and have your hand on it. I pray your word would speak with power. I pray this all in your name, Lord. Amen. All right, well, go ahead, turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. That's kind of the, uh, the text that we're going to be looking at. Look at verse 24. As well, so we're we're, we're going to look at a familiar passage. If you grew up in church, it might be more or less familiar to you than other passages. It is a, a a topic where Jesus talks about foundations, and it's the topic of identity and self worth, and the way that Jesus describes these realities. He he, he kind of relates them to a foundation. So, what is a foundation in general? Like, what do you first think of when you think of a foundation? You usually think of what, like a building, right? All buildings have foundations. You know, a, a building gets its sense of security, stability, worth, ultimately from how strong that foundation is. Even if you have a really, really nice house and the foundation is just kind of shaky, you don't really have that nice of a house. Uh, for example, when I was in college, uh, uh, we had this house on campus called Miss D's. It was this old sweet lady. And she had this really, really small house, really old house, right on campus. And she would always rent it out to a bunch of like Christian guys on campus. It was like her way of ministering to, 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 to uh, the, the, the Christian guys uh, in college. We loved her. She was great. I had some friends that lived in this house. It was a house that had like three bedrooms, 
But in college, it means that it has 12 bedrooms. You know what I'm talking about? So you have like 12 guys all crammed into a bedroom, a house that should really only have three guys. But nevertheless, they would throw these like disco dance parties uh, once a month. And uh, this house would hold about 200 to 300 people coming, dancing away to, you know, whatever EDM hits there are, Backstreet Boys, NSYNC, whatever. Um, some of you are like, yes. Others of you just look at me that really weird look. Don't judge, okay? You want, you listen to them. I know you did. Um, but, but there would be 200, 300 people in this very, very small house jumping up and down to music that was way too loud past the, the limitations of the city. And literally, I kid you not, because of how you know, old the house was, you know, ratchety the house was, 200 people, 300 people jumping up and down for several hours once a month on the foundation literally condemned the house. The foundation became so shaky that they actually had to, to, to like reinforce the foundation over and over again. <laughs> okay? But what I'm trying to say is that this house, the foundation that it had, did not support the weight that it was welcoming into its own residence. Okay, you see how this is, this is going? Even though it was a nice house, technically in a nice area of town, it was just not that great in terms of its foundations. It couldn't support it long term. Well, in a similar way, we as people, all of us, we all have foundations too, in a way. Those things in our life that we depend on to find our stability, to find our security, the things that, that we look to that make us feel like we matter, the things that we look to to find significance, validation. When life gets hard, it's the thing that I first fall back upon because that's the thing I look to for stability and security in life. So I, I want you to take a quick moment to think, okay, real quick, what is that thing? In your life, that deepest part of you that you look to for your sense of self-worth, that thing that in your day-to-day life, it's what you look to. I know most of you are like, Jesus, he's the most important thing to me. But in your day-to-day life, what is the thing that you cling to the most, that you depend on the most, where you look to for your security, where you depend on for your stability, where you see is, if I had that, that is life, that is happiness. And without that, life's not really worth living. What is that thing that you look to? That is your foundation. That is the thing that you depend on functionally, okay, to get you through day by day. So I hope you found it in your, in your Bibles, Matthew 7, verse 24. This is where we're going to uh, dive into. So this is what Jesus says. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Note that foundation. That's one, the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against that house. It fell and great was the fall of it. So he identifies really two foundations you can have in life, a rock and sand. Okay, the one truth in this scripture that applies to all people, Christians or not, and I realize there probably are not all Christians in this room, that's fine, I'm glad that you're here, the one truth that's applicable to everyone in here is not whether you have a foundation, the question is what is your foundation? It's not whether you have a foundation, it's what are you building your life upon? What is the source of your significance? Because everyone is trying to find it. That's true. All throughout life, people are seeking to establish, right, their foundation, their, their sense of specialness, of their worth, why they matter, why they stand out, that, that, that niche that they can kind of occupy that makes them feel important, that the, why they're valuable. Let, let, let me give you an example. All through high school, how did you find your significance and your validation? You would say, making the sports team, or being on the top of your class, or making your way into that cool friend group, if you will, or being in that relationship in college. Perhaps it's not too different. Maybe it's just establishing your significance in your GPA. I'm important because I have this GPA or this is my career path or, you know, who you're dating or, or, or what your prospects of the future might be when you finish out of college. All right. I'm out of college. I've been out of college for five years now. For most, it's seeking to establish your significance in your job. I'm important. I matter. I'm significant because of the job that I occupy, because of what I do or how much money I make, earning potential, the person that I'm getting married to. And so you put a lot of weight on those things. You need those things because that's where you're looking to find validation. 
security. It is your functional foundation in life. And this goes on your whole life, right? It does not end. After that, it's okay. Now that I'm married, now that I have a job, now it's the kids that I have, making sure they're perfect kids. And then it's the neighborhood that I live in. And then it's the, the, the school that I send my kids to. It just never, it never stops. You're always going to keep jockeying for a greater foundation. What you're doing is just you're shoveling sand more and more and more. Okay, but please hear me out. None of these things, okay, are bad. Romance, a gift of God. Money, a gift of God. Health, a gift of God. Friendships, a gift of God. What happens, though, is that we look at these things, and the dangerous temptation is to make them something more than what they actually are. They're not just relationships. They're your sense of validation. It's not just that friend circle. It's why you matter. It's not just your grades. It's why you're special and why you're smart and why you matter as well. They are your identity. In other words, we often look to, at those things, those blessings of God, and make them, wrongly, bricks, right? Of laying the foundation in our life for what we can depend on. In other words, we, we try to make good things into God things, and they end up becoming bad things. And what we'll see is that they end up ruining us and everyone else around us and everything else around us. It just doesn't work. Soren Kierkegaard, for those of you who are in philosophy, maybe that's a familiar name. If not, you're a normal person. That's okay, too. He has a great phrase. He says, It is the normal state of the human heart to try to build its identity around something besides God. It searches for something that will give it a sense of self-worth, a sense of specialness, a sense of purpose, and it builds itself upon that foundation. Soren Kierkegaard is not a Christian. Okay, He recognizes that is the nature of humanity to do that. That is what we naturally do. All right, let me give you a modern example of this that shows kind of the natural gravitation of our souls given sin, fall, what we talked about today. Uh, I watched this, this show not too long ago. Maybe you've heard of it called Black Mirror. How many of you have heard that show before? Okay, y'all love Netflix. Maybe you watch it too much. Uh, this one episode I watched on Black Mirror was called Nosedive. And uh, it, it, I, this is not me endorsing the show or anything, okay? Uh, I'm referencing it because this one episode, Nosedive in particular, was giving a, a really powerful, compelling illustration of what it looks like when you try to build your self-worth on everything that the world can offer, right? All under the sun. Everything. So, in this episode, everyone lived in a world where each person had a numerical rating above their head, one to five stars, okay? And everything you did or didn't do contributed to your overall sense of personal rating. Okay, it's, it's kind of like a personal Yelp review. Okay, you got five stars, you're somewhere in between one and five at all times of the day. Now, people are literally defined in this show in a very tangible way based on their performance and their circumstances, based on their accomplishments, accumulations, accolades. Okay, And in this show, the whole point of life is increasing your self-worth. Getting as close as you can to five stars. And once you get this closer up, then you've made it. Then you're happy. Then you have access in life. Then you have approval. Then you have significance and validation. But what the show so compellingly shows is that your life, you know, inevitably, is enslaved to that rating of always trying to get to five stars. Every little thing you do, people grade you and you grade them. No, no pressure, you know. They increase you, they decrease you. You increase them, they decrease you. In every interaction, all of your assignments, everything you do, it all goes down to an aggregate of what your rating is, one out of five stars. Okay? And you know how, you know how people graded one another? It was with this device, hold on, that looked oddly like this. Y'all seen this before? Yeah. A cell phone. And they're always looking at it, always checking it. Trying to see what's going on. How, how do I stack up? How do I measure up to the guy who's right beside me? Or to the girl who's in my friend group? And they're always obsessed with this. And they rank each other on it. And they get ranked on it. And they're always attached to it because they got to know. i got to know what my grade is. And they can't let go of this thing. And they're always looking down on it. So every single interaction, if it's a good interaction, someone swipes you up. I get five stars. All right, I'm feeling, feeling good. It's like a little hit of dopamine. I have a bad interaction. You know what I'm saying? And it's not, it's not as good of a feeling. And then you tell a bad joke, people rate you down. You tell a good joke, people rate you up. If you're a 4.2 star, you would never hang out with people who are a 3.0 star. No, 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 no. That will bring your rating down. You can't talk to them. you got to only be around people that are your own social class because that's only going to help you get somewhere. You see what I'm saying? You say all this makes. If you make the team, you go up. If you don't make the team, you go down. If you get a good grade, you go up. You make a bad grade, you go down. In, in the show, some apartment complexes don't let you in until you have a certain rating. 
You know, some jobs don't let you in until you have some kind of social currency to back you up. You know, of other people uh, um, giving you that validation. So what's the result here, really? Right? The powerful and the strong become sought after because they're the gatekeepers for your own currency. So you need them. They are your stepping stone, if you will, to the next point, to the next level of happiness. And so everything in life, everything is transactional. Everything you do is tit for tat. You do this for me, I do this for you. Relationships, culture, school, work, everything, it's never really about those things. Underneath it all is increasing your self-worth. It all becomes about you. Now, this is an absurd idea, right? Like, we would never agree to live in a society where we have a numerical rating above our head, GPA. No, we would never let, you know, live in a reality like that. Or our earning potential, salary, never, of course not. But that's the whole idea. That's the whole premise here. You know, that's the point. It's showing how ridiculous that actually is. And it's making very explicit that that's the idea that many people operate under every single day without even really calling it that. And then this this is what the show says. Well, what other alternative is there? This is just the way that life is. And the show's called Black Mirror. Why? Turn your phone off and look at yourself. It's a black screen, and you see your own reflection. Right. You're like, oh, I get it now. Yeah. All right. Why is it that way? Because it's showing you, when you really take time to look deeply into yourself, you see some darkness in there that you really might not have answers for. And that, that is hard for us to deal with. And this show, this is not a Christian show, okay? It's just saying, this is what we see, and we don't know what to do about it. And this is the day, the day that today we talked about the fall. This is our world today recognizing that there's a problem. And what's the solution? I don't know. That's what the show says. This is just the way that life is. It's making explicit the very principles that we are all kind of operating on, that my self-worth is determined by what I do, who I am is what I accomplish, who I am is the person that I date or that I'm with. And let's be honest, social media has not made this any better, right? Y'all know that. Never before in human history has there been a concept where you can quantifiably measure approval or status, Right? Like, that, that's completely foreign. But now we can do that with, with social media, so much so that Instagram even deleted the number of likes because it was causing people to be so stressed out all the time. Right? I mean, you all knew this is not good for my health to keep being obsessed about this number because the number wasn't really a number. It was a rating upon your self-worth, and people, people believed it as such. That's, that, that, that's, that's why this was all so messed up, and we recognize that. The real issue is not Instagram. The real issue is not your GPA. The real issue is not your friend group. The real issue is your foundation underneath that that you're looking to fulfill through those things. That's what Jesus is talking about here in this verse, Matthew chapter 7. He is saying, you know, there are two foundations in life. You have sand and you have the rock. What is it that is the sand that you can't really build your life upon? And what is it that is a rock that actually will last? It will keep you up when life gets hard. When the rain comes down, when the floods come, what do you depend on? Will that thing hold you up anyways? Well, only there is one rock. So I want to divide the rest of what I have today into two segments, really. The problem and then the solution. The problem, I want to show you why finding your self-worth and your performance or your circumstances, like building your house on the sand. Okay, we're going to dig into that a little bit more. And I'm going to spend more time on that because today's the fall, okay? It's going to be a little bit negative, but it only, the good news only comes when we really address that issue most clearly. And then I want to show you the solution, why finding your self-worth on the rock of Jesus and his love for you is actually like building your house on a foundation that will never fail you. Okay, so the biggest problem in life, number one, the problem is when you, we try to find our self-worth and to put something like as heavy as our self-worth onto something that's not strong enough to support it. Okay, the mantra of our culture is exactly what Black Mirror is trying to tell you. That you are what you do, your identity is in your ability, and your worth is your work. All right, and then this philosophy does not work. I want to kind of break this down into three reasons why this doesn't work. And you'll see this in college, and you'll also see this after college. It's the same thing, why these things don't work. So if you're taking notes, the first thing is this. The first problem, if you will, is is basing your self-worth on your ability to measure up will only breed comparison. Basing your self-worth on your ability to measure up will only lead to comparison, which will lead to pride and despair. Okay, we're going to get into that. How do I know that? 
Well, let me speak out of personal experience first. <laughs> uh, when, I was in, when I was in high school, my entire self-worth could be found on my personal resume. People, if, if someone asked me, Austin, why are you important? Why, why are you special? Why do you feel good about yourself? I would immediately grab my resume. I'd say, boom, got it. Bam. Right here. You know, I don't know, captain of several sports teams. Not a big, you're like, you don't look like an athlete. <laughs> you're right, I'm not. I went to a really small school, and it was easy to be a captain of a sports team. All right, but did that. Student government representative, you know, worship band player, valedictorian. Again, I went to a really small school. It doesn't really mean much. But nevertheless, I found my identity, my value in all my accomplishments and what I did. My significance was wholly based on what I did. And I mattered because I thought I had accomplishments. It made me stand out. It made me feel like I was different, special. Okay, I needed achievement to convince others that I was valuable. And I needed achievement to convince myself that others thought I was valuable. And if I didn't have that achievement and accomplishment, then I wouldn't really feel like life was worth living. I couldn't really be happy in my life. I didn't really feel like I had uh, a purpose. And so I depended on those things to give me my sense of identity. Those were my pillars of my foundation, if you will. And when I went to college, all right, I just got slapped in the face. Because I realized that all those things I did in high school, they didn't matter anymore. Like, I spent hours studying to get that valediction, uh, valedictorian, I can't even say the word right, yeah, valedictorian status. Hours. Didn't matter anymore. No one cared. Oh, you're a valedictorian? Me too. Good job. Ooh. I remember I was in one class, and, and the teacher, this, this teacher's cruel, by the way, she goes, raise your hand if you're a salutatorian or valedictorian from high school. And literally 70% of the class raised their hand, and I felt this big. That big. <laughs> All my accomplishments in college, I felt like they didn't matter anymore. So I felt this immense burden to grasp and grasp and grasp for accomplishment, for accolades, for good grades, for social life, to try to clothe myself to cover that insecurity that I felt. I felt naked spiritually because I didn't feel like I had anything to really fall back on. I needed these things and I needed to be clothed in accomplishment and acceptance to feel like I mattered once again. I was like, I gotta do this again? I spent four years in high school doing this, now I gotta do it all over again. And then after college, I guess I'm going to have to do it all over again. And if you move cities, you got to do it all over again. That's exhausting, right? Also, side note, we talked about this today if you were listening. What happened right when Adam and Eve sinned? What was their first thing they did? They hid and then what? Well, they did blame each other. They clothed themselves. They clothed themselves in fig leaves. They grasped for whatever they found immediately around them to try to cover up the areas that they were deeply insecure over. What are your fig leaves? What are the things that you you have to have to cover over your insecurities? Okay, what GPA, romance, the clothes that you wear, the friends that you have, your health, your abilities, the neighborhood you live in, the earning potential you have, that's your fig leaf, if you will. And, And here's the thing, we clothe ourselves to cover up that insecurity, but then... That clothing that we have, what it does is we start comparing our clothing to everybody else. Right? Oh, you wear Nike. I wear Louis Vuitton. Hmm. Oh, yeah. I'm not wearing Louis Vuitton, by the way. But anyway. And if you are, that's great, too. It's a great brand. Um, but nevertheless, you're going to keep trying to compare yourself. It leads necessarily to pride. You can't escape it. If you base your self-worth on how you stack up to other people and you're based on what you do, you're always going to be in comparison, and when you think you're at the top, it'll lead to pride, and when you think that you're not measuring up enough, it'll lead to despair. There is no middle ground. There's no other alternative. You're, you're constantly oscillating between the anxiety of pride and despair. Pride and despair. If you're succeeding, you're, like, you're anxious about keeping your spot. If you're not succeeding, you're anxious about getting there. You're, you're not free at all. C.S. Lewis, you know, who's, a, who's a great, great author, Mere Christianity, he, he has this quote in it. If you haven't read Mere Christianity, highly recommend it. He says this about this. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only, ha- only out of having more of it than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. If, everything, if everyone else became equally rich or clever or good looking, there'd be nothing to be proud about, right? To establish your self-worth, you've got to get ahead. You've got to get an edge You've got to prove yourself, stand out from the crowd in some kind of capacity. But this is slavery, right? You're enslaved to a standard that promises life and happiness. And it always says, work for me, work for me, work for me. And then I'll give it to you. And you never really know when it's good enough. Because as soon as you get it, there's another step. 
There's another person that you don't compare well enough against. This is a dead end. When you find your self-worth and your performance, it'll always lead to comparison, which will always lead to pride and, and, and despair. There's no other alternative. It just doesn't work. Number two is this. Basing your self-worth on what you do will actually make your failures and disappointments worse than they actually are. I'll say that again. Basing your self-worth on what you do will make your failures and disappointments worse than they actually are. Well, what do I mean by this? Let me give you some examples. Okay, if your self-worth is based on your athletic abilities, what happens if you get a career-ending injury? Okay? Oh, it's going to... Things broke apart so that you could have a breakthrough. Oh, I'm not, I'm not feeling that. Okay, well, what, what if your self-worth is based on your academic achievements? And then what happens if you fail an important test or you get rejected from your dream university or you don't get into the business school? Then what? <laughs> if your self-worth is based on the acceptance of others... What happens when you go to a new city and you don't have any new friends? Will you do anything at all to try to get those friends and approval that you need? If your self-worth is based on social media, what happens when you don't have as many followers as the next person? Or what happens if your account gets deleted? Then what? If your self-worth is based on romance and what prospects you're able to, who you have, what happens if you break up? You know, what happens if you can't find any prospects? If your self-worth is based on status, what happens when you don't get the recognition that you think that you deserve? Yeah, the problem with basing your self-worth on academics, athletics, approval, is that a failure in that category becomes much more than just a failure in that category. Why? Because your self-worth is tied up in them, which means a failure doesn't just threaten your GPA or athletic career or social status. It threatens you. It threatens your self-worth. For example, when I failed my first chemistry test in college, it hurt so badly. Was it because I cared so much about chemistry? No, I don't care about chemistry. But I needed academic achievement to make me feel like I mattered. And so when I, when I failed, I was like, I don't matter. It wasn't just an F. It was like an F over my existence, right? No, or how about this? Maybe you're like, I don't care about school. That doesn't matter to me. I'll get an F, whatever. Maybe, maybe for you, it's like having a girlfriend or a boyfriend, that's where you find your self-worth. But then if you break up, then a breakup doesn't just mean losing somebody. It doesn't just mean a breakup. It also means losing your sense of personal value as well. Right? You break up, and it's not just a breakup. It's, I'm worthless. I don't have worth. No one likes me. I can't be loved. It becomes way more than it's supposed to be. And let me pause and kind of also give another example, because I think this is kind of applicable. For many Christians, too, your self-worth, I'm speaking totally out of personal experience here, is it's really easy to not find your self-worth in Christ, but to find your self-worth in being a good Christian, okay? So, for example, I'm a good, I'm a, I, I have worth because I go to church, I'm involved, I'm a leader, I'm in worship band, people respect me, I'm talented, I have these spiritual gifts, and therefore, I matter in that Christian sphere. I grew up in a Christian home, Christian culture, Christian school, whatever. And so I felt like my worth came from fitting the mold that they wanted me to fit in. And if I fit the mold, then I was worth it. And if I didn't fit the mold, then like, I guess I wasn't that worthy. But here, here's, here's the problem. Tim Keller, who's a pastor, up in, or was a pastor in New York City, he, he tells a story about a, a man in his church. And this is, I thought it just hits home for so many in, in this area. Who, who went through a tragic, tragic event in his life. He had three daughters. He was a deacon at the church, a leader. Everyone respected him. And his three daughters got in a car accident, and all of them died. And um, people at his church uh, rallied around him and his, and his wife, you know, were, you know, absolutely horrible, horrific situation. Rallied around them. But they were always so amazed by how, like, even in that kind of horrible situation, he was still, like, God is faithful, he's sovereign, you know, I don't understand, but I'm going to have faith in him. People were just like, wow, that's amazing. A year later, Tim Keller says that this man, who had gone through horrific trauma, came into his office and was just absolutely torn apart. And, and Keller was thinking, okay, this is like, you know, it, it's taken a year to really like settle into this trauma. And now it's, he's coming unseamed. And he's like, I, you know, I, sometimes grief does this. It comes out at weird times. You know, tell me about, you know, your daughters and the spirit experience. And he's like, oh, no, no, this doesn't have anything to do with my daughters and, and, the, and their passing. <laughs> Keller was a little bit taken off guard. He's like, oh, okay, well, what's, what's going on? Well, why, why are you so bent out of shape? What's the trauma here? 
And, and the man t- explained to his pastor that he was having lustful thoughts about another man's wife in the church. And it was becoming to the point where he was like almost suicidal. And, and, and Keller could not connect the dots. He's like, no, wait a second. Okay, yeah, it, it, is lust, it is sinful to lust after someone else's wife. But how is something like that, a lustful thought, driving you to suicide, suicidal thoughts, and yet losing your three daughters, you're like a strong Christian in? How does that make sense? And so Keller believes that this is because this man, he found his identity in being the good Christian, in being the admirable person that people needed to look up to. It wasn't in Christ. And as soon as something came into his life that he felt like he couldn't control, he felt like life wasn't worth living anymore because he no longer was that admirable person. And this man ended up taking his life because he felt like his life wasn't worth living anymore because he didn't have that identity to back up on. You see, even in being a good Christian as your identity, that will fail you because you're going to sin. <laughs> you're going to sin and people are going to find out about it. And that's okay. Well, it's not okay, but you know what I'm saying. It's not okay that we condone sin, but, but it, we, we know that we're going to sin. That's part of sanctification. That's part of the process. But that's not where our identity is. We can't bank upon our own morality and what we do for God to be our, our, our security that we lean into. It's just too frail. It's too fragile. Only in Christ and who he is to us, that will, will, will give us meaning and purpose and significance. Don't, don't we see the pattern here? When you tie your self-worth to something that's not God, it is subject to becoming a failure and it becoming way worse than it is. That's number two. Number three is this. I'm going to keep moving a little bit faster. Number three is this. When you base your self-worth on your performance or circumstances, you might end up being someone that God never made you to be. I'll say that again. When you base your self-worth on your performance or your circumstances, you might end up trying to be someone that God did not make you to be. Okay, I'm going to give you a dumb example of this and then also a serious example of this. Both might hit home. You keep that to yourself, all right? <laughs> all right, dumb example. In high school, I really liked this girl. I, was, I crushed on her for like four years straight. I was, I was just so in love with her. She was awesome. Great girl. But... I like idolized her in the sense that I needed her to like me in order for me to feel like I mattered. I, I got my self-worth through her eyes. So when she treated me well, when she gave me attention, when she texted me, when she was intentional with me, I was like on cloud nine. When she didn't, when she forgot about me, when she didn't respond to a text, when I felt like she slighted me or didn't really be as intentional as I thought she could be, I was in the pits. Like, that, because I tied my self-worth to what she thought about me. Now, here, here's the heartbreaking thing. You're like, oh man, hopeless romantic high school dude. I know. She started liking another guy instead of me. You're like, oh bro, yeah. Yeah, that'll hit home. She started liking another guy. Now, me being just a stupid high school kid, I was thinking, all right, well, if she likes him, if that's what she's attracted to, then I gotta be like him in order for her to like me. Y'all are like, especially you girls, you're like, you're an idiot. <laughs> yeah, I know, I am. Did it work? No, of course not. Of course it didn't work. And I tried to be someone that I wasn't so that I could get the validation from her that I think I needed. Of course it didn't work that way. Now, okay, I'm going to say, I'm going to transition the same way. Maybe this will hit home to some of you. The same thing happened when I was at orientation. Not a girl, and same principle, all right. In orientation in college. I went there, you know, met up with like 100, 200 people. You know, people always had that conversation, you know, what's your name? Where are you from? What's your major? Why do you need to know my major? I just got here. Like, it's orientation, nevertheless. 90% of every single person I talked to, when I asked them, oh, where do you plan on studying? Oh, pre-med, obviously. Pre-law, duh. So I was like, wow, like 90% of all people are doctors and lawyers. That's crazy. Is that true? No, of course not. God did not make 90% of his people to be doctors and lawyers. Now, if God called you to be a a doctor and a lawyer, then do it, okay? Do it. But if God did not make you that way, if he did not call you to be that, don't do that. Why did 90% of people want to be a doctor or a lawyer? The money, the status. In our culture, that means that you've made it. That means you're important. That means people should respect you. That means you matter, okay? Now, of course, like, be a doctor, be a lawyer if that's what God's called you to do. But see, people are seeing this is a work, this is a vocation that is not just valuable for in what it is itself, or my passions, or what, anything. It's just useful to me 
to get me to where I want to be because it's a fig leaf so I can cover up for an area of insecurity in my own life because I need that to find a life and happiness. God did not make all of us to be doctors and lawyers. And so you end up trying to be someone that God never made you to be. Well, I'll just sacrifice my passions. I'll just sacrifice my God-given abilities on the altar of just getting a self-worth because I need that. I'm not trying to pick on on, on Muslims here. I, I had a lot of Muslim friends in college. And they had 44 people in MSA, Muslim Student Association. 44 people. And I asked one of my friends one time, because they were all studying to be doctors. I said, I was like, man, it just really seems like in your ministry, in the Muslim Student Association, that like everyone's a doctor. Is that true? Like, it, like surely it's just my perception. He goes, bro, actually, uh, yeah, out of the 44 of us, 43 of us are going to med school. And I was like, okay, one, I'm kind of impressed. Two, I'm really sorry for you. Because I know there are people who are training to be doctors who have no passion for it, who have no talent for it, and they're just killing themselves to prove themselves and to be someone that God never made them to be. And it's not just Muslims, you know that, it's, it's all of us. I just thought that was a good example. If you find your self-worth in what you do, you might end up becoming someone that God never made you to be. Okay? The great modern theologian of our day, Madonna. Once said this in Vogue magazine, an interview that she had, and this is extremely profound. She said, my drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. That is always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. But then later I feel like I'm still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. Because even though I have become somebody, I still have to prove that I have to become somebody else. And I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and I guess it never will. That's slavery. That's living your life built on the foundations of sand. How many of us, you know, can identify with that? Those are the three ways that why this living your life for self-worth doesn't work. It just does not work. Tim Keller, again, says this profoundly. When you work for your worth... You become doubly tired in life, doubly tired, because underneath your work, vocationally, you're trying to accomplish a greater work, which is accommodating your spiritual life, and you can't do that nine to five, because underneath, 24-7, you're still working. You can never rest. You're trying to validate yourself through something that will never validate you, and never can. It wasn't meant for it. Let's go back to Black Mirror, okay? How do you think that episode ended? Was it like, okay, it ended with the main character getting that five-star rating of self-worth, life finally working out for her, happily ever ever after? No. It ends with her striving and striving and striving and striving to get that five-star rating, then never being good enough. And then she's just lost into oblivion. That's how the show ends. And quite profoundly, this is the last scene in that show. She's in a jail cell with a 0.0 rating, next to another guy in a jail cell with a 0.0 rating. They don't even know each other, but they both look at each other, and she says, expletive you. And then he looks back at her and says, expletive you. And then the show cuts off like that. Why is that profound? Because what it's saying is when you treat others and your work as transactions to get your own self-worth, that's essentially what you're saying to them anyways. You don't care about them. You only care about what they can do for you. It's never really about work. It's never really about friendships. It's about meeting a deep, unmet need that you just can't fill. And unfortunately, the world has no way of coping with this at all. You just have to keep working, I guess. I mean, oh, I don't know. I asked some of my non-Christian friends. I said, what's the solution here? Right? You saw the show. What's the solution? One of them says, honestly, I don't know. I mean, life is just kind of like that. I mean, the winners win, the losers lose, and like, hopefully, uh, you know, you end up a winner. Good luck, you know. <laughs> just do it, you know. I asked another one of my friends, and he said, well, I guess the solution is just, uh, you know, just don't think about it, I guess. Have, have apathy. Try not to think about it. But it's real. Oh, great. That's good news. Yeah, I guess I'll just try to live in existential bli- like, like, like ignorance and try to just live in bliss, and, and I guess it'll be better. That is what the world says. That is a foundation built on sand, an identity constantly striving for something that will never actually support you. That's the problem. But thankfully, we as Christians, we have the gospel. We have a gospel message that actually addresses this well. This is your solution. 
to those three problems. The world says keep striving and keep striving and just do it and have it your way and keep climbing and never stop improving. All the self-help books that you'll read. And there's a place for some of that. But Jesus declares deep to your soul, it is finished. It's finished. So stop working for your identity. Stop working and striving. The world says you're defined by your work, your metrics, your numbers, your accomplishments, your goodness, your connections. And then Christianity says that you are in fact defined by your work, just not your own. You're defined by Jesus' work for you. And see, that's why you can have hope. You're defined not by what you do, but finally by someone whose work actually does matter and actually does have a weight in eternity. In the gospel, God proudly declares to you, you have worth because I say so. And more clearly than that, I demonstrated it by sending my one and only son to die in your place and to redeem you. You're worth everything to me. And it's by my work for you that I've accomplished and established your value. In your, and it's not based on your work. It's by grace through faith so that you can't boast. Right? You're worth something, not because of what you try to do and try to pr- prove for yourself. Your worth is found by what I've done for you, and it's only shown that way. If you're a Christian, okay, you have access to a type of self-worth that is not subject to the inevitable roller coasters of life. It's a type of significance that isn't earned by your performance or anything that you do or your accomplishments. It's not determined by anything else. It's given by grace, and it's received by faith. Anybody can have it. You simply accept it, you believe it, and you live in it in a day-to-day basis. That is a foundation built on the rock. There's an interesting verse in the Bible, in the Hall of Faith. It's kind of like the Hall of Fame, but like for faith. It's in Hebrews 11. And uh, uh, it's talking about Abraham here, who's called the father of faith. And, and there's an interesting phrase here, talking about the idea of foundation. In Hebrews 11.10, it says, Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Okay, what does this verse mean? What do you mean a city that has foundations? Obviously, all cities have foundations, okay? You can find any city that has a foundation, otherwise it's not a city. Okay, what does it mean? But a foundations whose designer and builder is God. What, what does that mean exactly? All right, ultimately, you need some context. I'm not going to go into it too deep here. But this is referring back to Genesis 13, where if you grew up in church, you, you remember maybe God saying, hey, Abraham, you and Lot, you're too big to be in one land. I'm going to give you the whole land of Canaan, but you've got to figure out how you want to do this. Just don't go to Sodom and Gomorrah, okay? That's where death and destruction is. Don't do that. So, so, so the lens of their perspective of Genesis 13 goes to Lot. And Abraham gives Lot the first choice, being the selfless man that he is. And Lot, it says, he chose the land right next to Sodom and Gomorrah, as, as close as you can get. But interestingly, this is what it says. Lot chose the land that was like the garden of the Lord. Like the garden of the Lord. Commentators here say that it communicates the idea that for Lot, he looked at that land and he said, happiness, there. Life is found right there. I I need that. I need to get over there. I need to have that GPA for me to have life. I need to be in that relationship. I need to be in that city, in that area, in that circumstance. And then... I'll finally have, you know, a good sense of happiness, self-worth. See, Abraham, on the other hand, he saw God as his security, his satisfaction, his self-worth, not determined by what he did, but because of who God was to him. And you know the story of how this ends. Abraham got God and was provided for everything else. Lot lost both. He thought that self-worth and security was found in all the things of the world, and he lost that. He never found it. It was ruined, and it ruined him. But Abraham found a foundation that was God. And it, even, even when he was in a wasteland, circumstantially, he had a foundation that was real and kept him alive, and kept him upright, and kept him happy and satisfied. That is what's so beautiful. Now, for those of you who are non-Christians in this room, okay, I'm not going to try to preach at you, use the Bible. I'm just going to speak to you strictly from a logical standpoint. Okay, Logical. Let's just be completely logical here. All right. If an unstable self-worth okay, is based on circumstance and your performance. Unstable because it's unstable. Your, per, your performance and your circumstance is just subject to the uncertainties of life. That means your self-worth is unstable. Therefore, the only stable identity possible is one that comes from something that's rooted in something that's beyond circumstance, beyond human effort. Right? That's the only way you're going to find a stable self-worth. 
Where do you get that? Only in the Bible do you have a self-worth. In any philosophy that isn't based on performance and and, and your circumstance. It's the gospel of grace. The one self-worth in the universe that's not based on what you do or where you are or where you go or how you prove yourself. Every other religion is about your works. Only Christianity is about God's works for you. That is why you can have hope. Now, here's my question to you. What frees you from being enslaved to the five-star rating that you have to have in order to be happy? What frees you from being bound to reciprocity? What, like, what's the solution exactly here? If you have to keep striving and striving and striving and striving for that five-star rating, your performance is always affecting your rating. Like, like how do you become freed from that? Well, what's interesting is that my non-Christian friend who I had this conversation with, he actually gave me the answer. He goes, well, I guess the solution is that... Uh, I guess you have a permanent five-star rating, and then it never drops based on what you do. I guess then you'd finally be able to have peace in life. And I was like, bro, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. You have the five-star rating, the righteousness of Jesus. He is the only one who lived a perfect life. He's the only one who earned the approval of the only one whose opinion really matters anyway, God's. He did it all in his perfect, righteous life. And in the gospel, he trades your 0.0 of your sin for his 5.0 of righteousness so that you can be fully approved by God. Only then, and this is the thing, it reverses those three curses that we talked about. Number one, if you find your self-worth in Christ, then you'll stop comparing yourself to other people. If you find your self-worth in Christ, you'll stop comparing yourself. Why? Because I don't need a jockey against other people. I'm fully fulfilled in him. So now people are just people, not stepping stones. Now, like, my relationships are just relationships. They're not like transactions. Now they're, like, real. Imagine that. Now my work is, like, my work, and I can, like, thrive. It's not something that I use to find self-worth. Galatians 5.13 says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, love. Here's the connection between freedom from the law and ability to love one another. When you're freed from the law, you don't have to keep competing against one another. Because if, if your identity is based on how well you measure up and how well you do things, you're always competing. But when that's taken out, now you can finally love people. Envy's gone. Jealousy's gone. Comparison, gone. Pride, gone. Despair, gone. You're freed. You can just love people because they're people. Number two is like finding your, your self-worth in Christ will prevent you from making your failures more than just failures. For example, if you get bad grades, lack of recognition, a breakup, because those things will come, that's just life, well, now that your self-worth is in Christ, it's just a breakup. It's just a bad grade. It's just an injury. It's just a friend group. It saves you from magnifying it to be something that it's not. And it gives you finally freedom from it. And then lastly, finding your self-worth in Christ, it'll encourage you to be who God made you to be. You no longer have to be someone or do something or have a vocation to impress people or to prove yourself. Now, because you have self-worth in Christ, now you just be who God made you to be. You like to develop apps? Then do it. You want to be in ministry? Then do it. You want to be a teacher? Then do it. You're going to be happier doing what God made you to be anyways. Find your self-worth in Him, lean in to Him, and then just let your natural leanings work out. Trust Him with that. I'm going to end, because I'm kind of short on time, with this, this analogy that I saw in a movie called Chariots of Fire. How many of y'all have watched that movie, Chariots of Fire? Less people than Black Mirror, that's okay. Chariots of Fire was a movie back in the 1980s, but it was based on a real movie about two Olympic track stars. So true story. The two Olympic track stars, one was Harold Abrahams and the other one was Eric Little. Harold Abrahams, what the movie does so well is that it, it, it illustrates the contrast of how these are two Olympic track runners, but nothing could, they could not be more different. Harold Abrahams ran, and in his running, that was his self-worth. He found his identity, his validation, his significance, all in his accomplishments and his performance. Eric Little, on the other hand, he was a Christian. He found his identity in God and who, who God was to him, and then he just loved to run, and he was really fast. Now, there was one scene in the movie that I'll never forget. It's chilling. An interviewer asked Harold Abrahams this question. She said, Harold, right before you get up on the track, like on the starting blocks, before the gun goes off, what's running through your mind? Like, what's going on right before the gun goes off? 
And what he said was this, I'll never forget it. He says, right before the gun goes off, I tell myself, I have 10 seconds to justify my entire existence. No pressure, right? You better run for your life, literally. Now, the same question was angled towards Eric Little, and if you've seen the movie, you already know. And she said, Eric, what about you? Like, right when, the, right before the gun goes off, right when you're getting on the starting box, what, what's going through your mind before you take off? He's like, well, I just have one thought. And that is, when I run, I just feel God's pleasure. Those are two vastly different philosophies about how you're going to run your life. Either I run for my existence and I'm justifying myself, or I run because like, I, this is who God made me to be. And I have freedom. One philosophy will ruin you. The other philosophy will save you. One philosophy will suffocate you. The other philosophy will give you oxygen in your lungs and you'll run. Whatever you end up doing. The question for you is, who are you? Right? Are you Harold or are you Eric? And that's something that we all need to take to heart, but ultimately it only comes from finding your foundation on the rock. Every other foundation is sand. Right? You know the hymn, on Christ, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. That is what it means to have your self-worth found in Him. That's what it means to find your self-worth and to move forward in life and freedom. See, Jesus didn't come to just save you for eternity. He came to give you freedom now. And that comes when you apply that gospel message to your life day by day. It's not just a gateway into heaven. It's, it's, it's the gateway into a life of freedom today. You've got to believe that and press into it. That's the gospel message. I'm going to close in prayer. And we got like six minutes for Q&A. I know I didn't give a ton of time. If y'all want to do that, or you can just come up and talk or whatever. I'd be happy to, to meet with you guys. But um, I'm going to go ahead and pray and, and close this out. Lord, thank you for this opportunity that we've had just to gather around your word on, on Matthew 7, your promise to us about who you are, where to find our self-worth, where to locate our identity and why we matter. Lord, I, I pray for this group um, and, and the Jubilee Conference overall. I pray you would show us the ailments, truly, of finding our identity in anything but you. And that you would teach us the joy and the freedom of knowing what life looks like and feels like when we're living, truly, from your vantage point and not our own. I pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen.